Hi, everyone. Welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. Dr. Hall, thank you again. Nobel Prize nominated doctor. Uh, also, best-selling author and emergency room physician. How are you, Dr. Hall? And I know you're excited about our guest. Well, hey, Neil. You know what? I'm doing great. And I'm very excited about our guest because uh, this gentleman certainly has a very powerful and uh, interesting story. All right. Who's our guest today, Dr. Hall? Well, you know what? Well, it's my pleasure. You know, great honor to uh, introduce one of the uh, former NFL players. He played for a number of teams, defensive end, um, an exciting player, but has a great story to tell us about his life. Wow. Well, I'm very excited to welcome to the show, Mr. James Harris. Welcome to the show, James. All right. How you doing, Doc? How you doing today? I'm doing very, very well. And uh, how you doing today, Neil? Fantastic. All right. So, Chris, go with your first question, because what I saw getting you guys together is because Dr. Christopher Hall wrote Ward of the Courts, where he showed a parallel of his life versus his brother who ended up going to prison. You went to prison as well. So it's it fits in a good kind of the story and strategy, Dr. Hall, to talk about that really is not intriguing. The kind of parallel of the, of the stories of an athlete that ended up in prison versus your brother and knowing the, the decisions that are made, right, Dr. Hall? You know what, that, that's very, very important, very true. And and then the beginning of my life, Neil, when, you, when I was actually in the juvenile halls, every juvenile hall in Los Angeles, and in different boys' homes and foster homes since I was a kid. And so, you know, we end up on sometimes that side of the law, and we're not intended to do that. But today we have an extraordinary story from Mr. James Harris, and he's done one of the most difficult things to do. First of all, that's to end up in a professional team in the United States NFL. So, you know what, James, tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from and um, how did you end up with your interest in football? Well, I'm from, uh, from the city of East St. Louis, Illinois. Um, the way I got into football was through my mom. My mom loved football, so she put me into football. And uh, from there, I blossomed to become a professional football player, but it all began with my mom back in East St. Louis. Wow. And, and you know, Dr. Hall, when, I, when I, we heard in this story is again, you know, that James um, didn't think it was going to be football as we talked about on a different show, but go ahead and your next question, Chris. Oh, well, no problem at all. So that's just one of the most difficult things that, you know, we see our young people trying to do to make a professional team. It takes a lot of skill, hard work, and, and dedication. Certainly, James showed that. Now, um, I know, I think he went, you went to school there in Philadelphia. Tell us a little bit about that, your experience at Temple, and then leading up until, you know, actually making that transition from college football to the pros. Tell us about that, James. Well, my experience at Temple was a very good experience. It was a, a good college to go to. Uh, my mom was determined for me to um, to get a good education. Uh, football was secondary to her once I got to college because n nobody's uh, promised to go to the NFL. So I, I went there to give me a good education. Um, I found myself uh, a little short on money, so I started doing things to make money. But my experience in Philly, man, I wouldn't trade it for anything because I met some really good people and people that steal my friends. And I got a great education out of Temple University. And I got the opportunity to play football on the college level at a big time school and make it to the pros from there. So Temple, I owe uh, Philadelphia a lot because I learned a lot about myself. Um, I learned how to be on my own all the way on my own in Philadelphia. 
And I looked at Philadelphia as a big East St. Louis because I saw a lot of people that looked like me in North Philadelphia, and it made me a little comfortable. Now, when you played at Temple, how good were you guys when you played at Temple at that time? <laughs> we weren't very good at all, man. It was it was horrible. Uh, Bruce Harris was our coach in the beginning. And Bruce Harris was really kind of the reason I wanted to go to Temple. Uh, but then he up and left, and um, we got a guy by the name of Jerry Burns um, that came to Temple. And I, we really wasn't that good. We may have had two good seasons. Uh, the best season, I would say, we were seven and four. But we had some very good players from different places, and they played hard, but we just never, ever got that that togetherness that, 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 that make you win. But we had a bunch of good players that ended up going to the NFL. All right, Chris, next question. Wow. Yes, very much so. And, you know, and probably at that time, it was hard to, you know, go from a school at Temple at that time to the NFL, get another great accomplishment uh, that you've done. So now tell us about uh, that feeling. How did it feel when you actually got into the NFL? Hey, you're in the pros now. Just describe that feeling as a young person. How did you feel? I felt, I felt like I belonged. I never came into the NFL like I didn't belong because I, I I fought my tail off to get to the NFL and I had some some pitfalls along the way. So I had learned some things. Um, to get into the NFL, man, and stay, it's the hardest. It's to stay. Um, I came in as a free agent. I wasn't drafted. I was disappointed that I wasn't drafted because I had had a great senior year and I was told that I would be drafted. I, I thought I did well enough um, that year to be drafted, but I wasn't. But uh, I got to the NFL, and I said to myself, I belong here, so I'm going to work my tail off to be here. But um, as a young player, I was kind of lost because once I got there and I found out the NFL isn't a sport anymore, it's a business because I signed my name on a contract. So now I'm an employee. Yeah. It's not, it's not a sport anymore. And Chris Dolman told me, he said, the sooner you find out that this is not a sport, longer you will last because this is a business. Cause I asked Chris, why do you bring this briefcase to work, man? He said, this is a business. This is not a sport anymore. Anytime you're playing for money, you are in business for yourself. That's crazy. It's true. You're in business for yourself. You got to figure it all out. Now, Chris, I know you want to you want to know how he ended up uh, in prison, right, Chris? Go ahead with the question. Yeah, well, you know, this is very, very interesting because, again, just making it out of East, East St. Louis as a young person, that in itself is, is very, very difficult, hard to get out there for a young black man. And what James have done making it out of there into the NFL – uh, incredible. And and as we know, there certainly are obstacles through our life. We all have them, challenges, you know. And so, yeah, James did come up against the challenge. And so tell us a little bit about that. How did uh, you cope during that challenging time in your life that you, you went from really, you know, uh, from the fields to the feds? So explain okay. that, how, how that happened. Well, we, we have to go all the way back. So we're going to go back to East St. Louis. I, I always was a, a kid that wanted things. My mom was a school teacher. She worked her behind off to get me and my brother what we wanted. But I thought it wasn't enough. And um, I picked up a hustle. The hustle was uh, the street life, uh, selling drugs, 
I did it. I, I, I'm not the only one, but I'm not proud of it, but I did it. And um, I found a way to hide, hide it while I was doing it. I started probably around 13, 14, and I was hiding. I can hide it from my mom. I, I was hiding from At the age of 15 years old, I had my, I had a, uh, my first $100,000 I made. And I hid it for years. Right. And um, I, I continued all the way to, from East St. Louis to college. But my first year when I got to, to Philadelphia, I was kind of reluctant on continuing what I was doing. So I bumped, I bumped into some guys one time. And uh, they was like, you from me, St. Louis, we talking and we having a good time. And I said, what y'all do? You know, they tell me, say, man, you know, I, I do a little of this, a little of that. I say, hey, man, um, put me down. And um, I start selling marijuana at Temple, out the dorms, to the, to the students. And like I said, I'm not proud of it, but it was making me money. And I knew my mom didn't have the money to send me, you know, she was sending me $20 a month. How can you live off $20 a month in college? Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty right. hard, but I couldn't put that pressure on my mother. And I was already a hustler and I was quick on my feet and I didn't mind getting in the streets because I, I, I'm pretty good at struggling the fence on business and in the streets. And I, I picked that up early in my life. And so I started selling marijuana and I meet a guy. So I'm, I'm selling a lot of marijuana. In, in Philadelphia. And I mean, I became big very quickly, but nobody never knew it was me doing the selling because I would never put the two lives, let the two lives cross because I was, I was there to be a student. That was number one, a student athlete. That's number one. But I was also there to survive. And they wasn't giving me any money. You know, back then, they wasn't giving student athletes money to go to school. You know what I mean? We, we couldn't work because if you work, if you work, you lose your scholarship. So I found a hustle selling marijuana and I was getting it by the pounds, hundred pounds here, hundred pounds there. And I was, I was making a lot of money and um, I wasn't ashamed of it, but nobody knew I didn't have to be ashamed because I ran it like a business. You know, I, I had my steps. Yeah. I had my, I had my workers. I had my guy that pick it up. I had my guy to drop it off. I never really even touched it. Uh, I, I got my money from, you know, the money I had from when I first started selling uh, cocaine back in St. Louis. So I took my money and said, okay, I'm going to leave this cocaine alone for a while because this is a little dangerous. So I started doing the weed and, and it, it was going <laughs> fine. <laughs> it was doing fine. And I just, <laughs> I just continued. And then, uh, you know, all through my college years, that's what I did. And uh, I end up going to the NFL, and I look at myself in the NFL. I said, "Well, I'm a free agent. They wasn't paying that much money back in the 1991, and then especially as a free agent. So I had already had a a nice grip of money. So I wasn't worried about how much they was giving me. I just wanted the opportunity to get in the NFL. So right. I get in the NFL, and I just never stopped doing what I was doing. So I was in Miami, and I bumped into a a guy that I knew from my past. And he introduced me to someone else. And now I'm back in the cocaine business. Now I'm selling maybe 10 keys a week. Keys of cocaine. So, while playing in the NFL, that's crazy. Why playing in the NFL? I mean, but wow. I, never let my, I never let my two lives cross paths, never. And, and I'm not proud of what I'm doing. I hope people don't be like, I'm bragging because I'm not bragging. I just didn't see uh, 
the money that other guys was making in the NFL. As hard as I worked, I never accumulated the money that I wanted. And 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 plus I was stuck in a situation where um people depended on me uh that was selling that was working for me. They depended on me. And I was just there and I was like, okay, how do I separate these two lives? I've been doing it for my whole entire life. Hey, I did it. My mom didn't even know. You know, my brothers wow. didn't know. My I separate I had two sets of friends. I had friends that I hustle with and I had friends that I can be a kid with. And I separated them. And I did it for years. And even once I got an NFL, I separated my NFL friends from my street friends. They never crossed paths. But I meet a guy on the early in my life that ended up playing a, a part in my life later in my life. Uh, when I when I end up going to prison, and um, he was a guy that was into the, the stock market, and you know he was teaching me how to, you know, hmm. hide my money, hide my money where I I had money where I didn't know where to put it. So I meet a guy, he teach me how to move it around and put it in different places. So I wasn't money laundering and nothing like that. But I was just trying to figure out how to get rid of some of this money. And uh, he showed me, and I kind of mixed this money with that, mixed that money with that, and uh, I ended up in prison <laughs> uh, right. for not doing doing the right things. And I don't want to get my... I don't want to give my story. No, don't give away any more of the book. That's it. That's no, enough. I don't want. I don't want to get because I'm doing a movie and I'm doing a book, and sure. I don't want to give it all. I don't yeah, want to yeah. And I'm your agent now, right? The media oh, giants. Oh, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the media yeah. giants. James, agent. Go ahead, Chris. Last question. Well, you know what? Me. You know what? Uh, a fascinating story. Like I said, I mean, and he's not bragging at all. What he's doing is he is using his life experience to try to help and educate other young people who may come that path. And he doesn't want to see them end up in the same way. And that's what, you know, this exciting book is about. You know, he's an author now. And from the playing fields to the feds. I mean, I can't wait to get my copy to read this. I know this is going to be such an intriguing story. Um, and, you know, what he talks about is something that's not uncommon. I mean, there are a lot of people who actually have dual lives and, in fact, one of the biggest cocaine dealers ever in the city of uh, Philadelphia was a doctor, uh, Larry S. Lavin, uh, uh, was a dentist well-known. I'm not sure people know about him, but uh, mm -hmm. he wrote a book. Awesome. Doc, can I say one thing yes. to the public? Yes, is I don't want yes, them to, to re I don't want them to read my book and think that I'm glorifying selling drugs or uh, having a lot of women or fancy cars. I'm not going to find that. I'm I'm hoping that some yes, some young some young man read this book and say, I don't want to go down that path. I'm mm -hmm. showing them a path that they don't want to go down because it don't it's only going to end up in the feds or it did. You know what I mean? Those are the two options. But right. I, I got lucky I didn't get killed. I didn't I didn't I only went to jail for a little while. And matter of fact for only for a little while. And, and right. the weird thing is, yes, I don't go to jail for what they think I'm going to jail for. <laughs> All right. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks again, James. This book is available at Amazon. You're going to be hearing more of James Harris. 
as he comes as a regular guest on the Neil Haley Show and everywhere else. Appreciate it, James. There's his book. Go ahead and say it again, James, the title. From the playing fields to the feds. If you don't follow my path, you will end up there. I mean, if you follow my path, you will end up in the feds. So I'm hoping that you get this and read it and don't follow my path. God bless you, and I love you. All right. All right. That was the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show, the Dr. Christopher All Show. Guys, take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Strategic Wealth Strategies. I'm excited to welcome the host of Strategic Wealth Strategies, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? How are you doing? I've been very, very busy today and yesterday and had eye surgery last week, but uh, things are looking up. My eyes are doing well, seeing better already. All right, so let's kind of go right in. Our topic today is the best financial vehicle. And, and I'm going to ask questions about this, Alan, but this is a time where everything doesn't seem like anything financially is working. People are selling People are cutting back. People are looking at, hey, bad times are ahead. But ultimately, Alan, you have the answer during these times, especially if you want to raise money, make money, grow in this very difficult time. Alan, what, in your opinion, is the best financial vehicle right now? Well, my opinion and the opinion of the properly educated and licensed individuals is cash value life insurance because there's nothing out there that can come even close to it uh, with the benefits and everything that it has. And uh, absolutely. And, and you, you were able to tell me so many different ways we're going to go into that. But I mean, I was blown away because I always, Alan, before we get to this question, I always bad mouth things to my ex-wife about this because back in the day she had a product, but maybe 25 years ago it was a different story. I was like, Come on now, go to term life because I was listening to Dave Ramsey. I was, and we're going to go later into that. Alan, when did you kind of start seeing that cash value life insurance was a great financial vehicle when it had such a bad name? And me who reads books on this stuff, and we'll go into Suze Orman after that and, and what Dave Ramsey say. But what do you think? Why, Alan? Why did why it have such a bad reputation 25, 30 years ago? Now it really is showing it is a great financial vehicle. Well, one of the things that the reason is because, you know, we, we were in a situation where the prime interest rate was like, I don't know, 19%. Mortgage rates were up to 18%. And they did a lot of illustrations in insurance policy, especially universal, uh, that showed these big gains like 12 and 14%. Well, they don't, they can't, they're not doing that. You know, they've been given interest rates of, or interest crediting of anywhere from five and a half to from up, up to 8% for over 100 years. And uh, they're the only company uh, or only financial institution that's been around for over 200 years. And many of them for 150 paying dividends every year they've been, even through the Depression. But, Neil, the way I got into this, of course, was back about 13 years ago. Uh, I was had a mortgage in real estate business. And my daughter-in-law uh, was diagnosed with, uh, with pancreatic cancer at age 39. And uh, there's no money coming in because my son's 100% disabled, been disabled for three years and not getting any money. He finally got a disability app after hiring an attorney. But uh, if it had not been for the terminal illness writer on her life insurance policy that let her access the death benefit, which was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, my son would be bankrupt and it took a huge financial strain off of me. So that's when I started studying insurance and insurance products. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do today. Did you think, like I thought, before that, Alan, that these vehicles like 
cash value insurance rather you know protect ourselves from death with term did you have a different opinion till you did the research well yeah i did because i had term insurance i don't have term insurance anymore i've got eight insurance policies five index universal universal and two uh, uh, three whole life policies and they're for different reasons but uh it's all about education as i tell everybody this isn't rocket science. It ought to be taught in high school, but it's not. I have doctors with PhD degrees in accounting and finance, and they have no idea about some of the strategies and products that I talk about. No, hundred percent. Let's so let's kind of go into. We've all we've heard of Dave Ramsey and Sue Zorman. They both said buy term, invest the difference. Okay. Well, why does that not work? Well, I, I don't like calling somebody's baby uh, ugly. Uh, I agree with about maybe a portion a portion of what they they espouse but they're financial entertainers i don't think they're licensed in anything and they're sure not fiduciaries and what i mean by fiduciary you you you're obligated to look out for your client's best interest i'm a certified financial fiduciary i've taken the courses i've taken the test and i've got the designation but when they say buy term and invest the difference that's the absolute worst advice for retirement i've ever heard in my life because they said oh you don't need insurance when you when you get older that's the time you, that you do need insurance. And um, there's many reasons about this, but, and I'll cover that when we go through these questions, but you know, they, they, they appeal to the people, the, they appeal to the masses and maybe 50% of what they say is gonna help, but the last 50% of what they say is gonna decimate your retirement. It's definitely gonna decimate the retirement because the fact is that you don't know what's gonna happen. You've talked about all these things, we're gonna get further into this, but again, term life, the problem is unless there's a serious disaster, you don't get anything else after that goes, right? It's all gone. Poof. You spend 15 Neil, years spending money and it's gone. Neil, the thing about term life insurance, I asked people, I said, would you rather spend $1,000 a year or $10,000 a year on a life insurance policy that has a $500,000 death benefit? And they all say, well, I don't $1,000. I said, why is that? Well, it's cheaper. I said, I understand that. But that's term life insurance. If you live one day past life expectancy, there's no cash value, but you can have the same amount of money because when term, the older you get, the more expensive term is, but you can have the same amount of money in term life insurance up to life expectancy as you have in cash value life insurance. But if you live one day past life expectancy, there's no cash value. There's nothing left in term life insurance. But if you have that in cash value life insurance, whether it's an index universal life or whole life policy, that death benefit may be $1.5 million. And you've got eight or nine hundred thousand dollars in a tax-free account that you can do with anything that you want. It's huge, man. Absolutely. Okay, let's go to the next question. Uh, if I had that insurance is too expensive, what do you have to say about that? This insurance is too expensive, Al Alan. Well, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a businessman come to my office, and I went over the, the benefits of cash value life insurance in a retirement plan. And he says, "I've never heard of any of this stuff before, Alan." He said, uh, we're meeting with my financial advisor on Thursday, and uh, we'll go over this. So this was a Tuesday. On Wednesday, that financial advisor called me up, and he said, Alan, I appreciate what you're trying to do for the client, but I'm going to tell him not to do it. And I said, well, why? I, he said, because insurance is too expensive. So I said, well, listen, I'll come over to your office, or you can come to mine, and I'll explain, uh, because we're meeting with the client on, on uh, tomorrow. And he says, well, I don't have time. And he hung up. So I called him back, and I said, well, I'll tell you what. You either come over to my office today and I'll explain this or come tomorrow. I'm going to put you on the under the bus and embarrass you very badly. So he shows up. 
So I said, uh, first thing I said to him, I agree with you. Insurance is expensive. It's expensive up front, but it's an inverted expense. As the cash value keeps growing towards the death benefit, your cost of insurance becomes lower. Now I've done thousands of these illustrations. And within the fourth to the 13th or 14th year, the cost of life insurance is less than the tax and taxes and fees in a, in a stock portfolio. And the stock portfolio has none of the benefits that cash value life insurance does. So he changed his mind. That's good. He, cha he changed his mind. Everyone kind of does because I guess they look at costs, but then guess what? You're investing. That's you the crazy part, man. You're getting uh, you, you money. Yeah. You can't you you can't think of it as a cost, and you can't call it an investment because it's not an investment, but it's the best asset class in in by itself. There's no other financial vehicle out there that can do what cash value life insurance does. So it's an asset into itself. I don't even call uh, invest, uh, life insurance an investment because it's it's derogatory because investments don't do what the cash value life insurance does. All right. So what are some benefits of cash value life insurance? I probably can name them all too, Alan. I've interviewed somebody on the Mike Velarde show uh, about this that Mike had to, that you know, has some of your knowledge, but not to your level, Alan. And I would I nailed every question. I kind of asked the questions, knew exactly the answer to the question. I could nail what are some benefits of cash value life insurance, but I'm gonna let you come up with that. But at one point, maybe you'll say, ask the host. Has he okay. asked the co-host the pot? Does he how much does he has he learned working with Alan Porter for X amount as a co-host? But go ahead with your answers. Okay, well, first off. You know, everybody says, I said, why do you contribute to a 401k? And they say it's tax deductible. I said, well, no, it's not tax deductible. It's tax compounding. Because if you think taxes are not going to go up uh, in uh, the future, I got mountain land in Florida to sell you. But I said, cash value life insurance can also be tax deductible if properly structured in certain financial vehicles, such, such as a cash balance plan or something like that. But Cash value life insurance grows tax deductible, just like a 401k or a qualified plan. The, the uh, distributions are tax-free, which are huge. And people say, well, Alan, my Roth 401k, my Roth IRA are tax-free, and so are municipal bonds. I said, I, I beg to differ. I said, because municipal bonds, if you live in a state other than where, uh, and reside in a state other where they're issued, you have state taxes to pay. And you have, if your state is large enough, you have e-state taxes to pay. And... Municipal bonds affect the taxation of Social Security and the means testing for Medicare Part B. So they're not tax-free. And I said, yes, your Roth, your Roth 401k, Roth IRA, that grows tax-free or get your distributions tax-free, and they don't have required minimum distribution, and they don't affect the taxation of Social Security or the means testing for Medicare Part B, just like cash value life insurance. Because people don't understand this, Neil, and I don't think their CPAs or financial advisors tell them because frankly, I don't think they know. But in today's tax standards, if taxes don't go up and you make more than $44,000 a year of outside provisional income, such as a qualified plan, stock portfolio, or something like that, and you, you're married and age 65 and you get $3,000 a month in Social Security, 85% of your, of your Social Security is going to be taxed. And what that does, that puts you in the 12% uh, minimum tax bracket, 10.1, I believe it's 1.3 effective tax bracket, provided taxes don't go up, Neil. You're paying $6,000 a year to Uncle Sam in extra taxes. People don't know this. 
What about borrowing money from your, your policy? I've heard about becoming your own bank. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, I, I've got a kind of a, um, I work with a smart advisor program and we've got a national, uh, I don't know, program, I guess, to get people out of debt. It's called our Debt Free for Life program. But uh, I hate to bring Dave Ramsey back into this, but we show Dave Ramsey wants you, wants you to pay the financial institutions money instead of compounding for them, but not yourself. Quick example, you've got a uh, a credit card and you've got a car payment. You make the minimum payments on both. And what Dave says, if you got $500 extra, you add to the minimum payment of the car, excuse me, to the credit card. And when that's paid off, you add the minimum payment and that $500 to the car. And when that's paid off, you're debt free. But what you're doing, you're giving that money to the financial institutions, it compounded for them and not you, but you're right back to where you were before. You're debt free, but if you want to buy something, you have to go to the bank or put on a credit card. And uh, it's the fastest way, I, I will say that, maybe by two to three months, maybe. But as we do, uh, we take that money and put it into a SDIC, a specially designed insurance contract. It's a tax-free bucket of money and a whole life insurance policy. Now you can do this with an index universal life policy also. But let's say you take that $500,000 and put it into a policy. Uh, we have a software program that monitors the growth of that tax-free bucket of money and also the decreasing balances on your on your uh, credit card and your car payment. And when it reaches a certain point, you're going to get a text on your phone to take a loan from your tax-free bucket and pay off the credit cards. But instead of that minimum payment from the credit cards going to the car, you pay yourself back into your tax-free bucket of money where it compounds for you. And it will grow. And once it gets big enough, you're going to get a text on your phone to take a loan out, pay off the car. And then when that's paid off, you pay yourself back. But when you're done, You've got tens of thousands of dollars in a in a tax free bucket of money. You become your own bank, and a death benefits is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect your family. There's no comparison, absolutely none. And and uh, and I, I'm going to go. There's some other things I'll go in here a little bit later. You know, I I'm going to talk about that, Alan, because it's so intriguing when you talk about it. Because you are basically making payments. To, have, to be able to borrow all of it and pay off your car right off the bat, your truck right off your bat, maybe a boat, maybe some, you know, something amazing. And literally, it's not going to take you forever to save that up because of what you're building out. Right. Well, see, you know, I even had a guy borrow $500,000. Uh, we were out playing golf and he's building a new house up in Virginia. His lot was over $500,000. And he said that he needed to get a bank loan and he's going to the bank this afternoon. I said, no, you don't. You just go take it from your cash value life insurance and then pay yourself back the compounding interest and not the banks. So I showed him how it worked. He said, my God, why didn't, why didn't everybody do this? I said, because they're not educated on it. I said, I've told you about this before, but you must have forgot. No, so tell us what, how long for a $500,000 plan can you do something like that? And what do you do? Kind of go through the steps. I think this is something that I've not learned from you in all the time I've been working with you. Well, I mean, he's made, first off, uh, he had uh, like $400,000 in his uh, retirement plan. We took that money and put it in cash value life insurance. He, we had like, a, I think his payments were like $80,000 a year for five years. So that's building up. It's all tax deferred, tax free money. And that's what he's built up. He, he's got several policies. And between all those policies, he had over a million dollars in cash value. But uh, that's the way you build your policies up. It depends on what you're your premium is, how much your insurance is and things like that. But 
we use indexing strategies. Uh, we're not tied to the market. You have a guarantee to never lose money because we're not tied to the market. We use indexing strategies. We also use fixed rates, like especially with whole life. They have fixed rates between four, uh, four and a half, six and a half percent. Uh, but the thing is, there's, there's no risk. You're, you're eliminating the risk of, market, of the market, which is absolutely huge. So when you borrow against it, you have to pay it back or not, Alan? You don't no, want to you don't have to pay it back. You don't have to pay it back, Neil. It just comes off the death benefit. Now, they do charge you interest. But as an example, let's say that you have a policy. Uh, you've got $200,000 in that policy, and you got a million-dollar death benefit, and you need a $50,000 uh, loan to buy a piece of equipment. Now, you can go to the bank, get the loan, maybe. If you don't make, make your payments, you have a six-month note, 12-month note, or a installment loan. If you don't make your payments, they'll repossess that equipment and ruin your credit. But if you have that money in your policy, take that in your cash value, take that out, borrow it from yourself. You have unstructured loan payments. It may be 18 months before you get return on your investment. Now start paying it back then. You have liquidity use control of your money. But you don't even have to pay it back. As I said, it just comes off the death benefit, which is in the hundreds or millions of dollars more than what you've ever invested in. And also, there's three types of loans. There's a net loan with one company. It's, uh, they have a uh, guarantee of 5%. Many of them are 45 4%. But this one has 5% for this example. And uh, the, what the insurance company does, they're not going to take that $50,000 and put it as a lien against your death benefit. They're going to put it as a, excuse me, they're take, not going to take it as a lien against your cash value. They're going to take it and put it as a lien against your death benefit. But what they do is they'll put that into a financial entity that's, say, making 3%. So they're going to credit you with a 3%. And you're, so you're paying 5%. You're paying only 2% on the loan. But they've got riders now uh, with this one company. You can purchase a rider. And if you borrow money, it's a zero. It's a wash loan. Or you can be with the company for 10 years. And you borrow at 5%. They'll put it in a financial entity that's making 5%. They'll credit you with 5%. So you're paying zero on the loan. But there's one company. I mean, there's dozens of indexing strategies out there that we use to grow the cash value. And one of them is called the trigger method. And anytime you, uh, the S&P 500 index goes to zero, makes 1% or makes 20%, you're automatically credited with 7%. So think about that, Neil. You're borrowing money at 5%. You're getting credited with 7%. you are making 2% on the money that you borrow. The banks do it every day. I mean, Probably. you got $100,000 in a savings account. What do they pay you, 1%? They go loan it out at 5 10 15 20% for credit cards. They do it every day. What is an effective interest cost? Oh, this is, this is so important. It's just going back to uh, becoming debt-free. I had a gentleman had a 2.75% uh, interest rate on his mortgage. And he asked me, and I asked him, I said, what's your effective interest cost on that? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, don't feel lonely because 99% of the people I talk to, to include CPAs, attorneys, and financial advisors, don't either. I said, I want you to fill my debt-free for life form out, send it back to me, and we'll have a conversation about this. So we had a Zoom conference the following week. I said, now you've got $461,000 in debt. That is not your problem. The problem is the 49.76% effective interest cost that you're paying on the 2.75% rate. He said, Alan, how is that possible? I said, because it's not going to get down to the 2.75 until the last couple months of the mortgage. I said, you've got a credit card here that's over 95% effective interest cost. Even though you've got great credit, your average effective interest cost is over 46%. So Neil, I asked him, I said, what financial vehicle are you investing in? that gives you a 46% return on your money in your 401k or anything else? He said, no. In fact, I lost 10% in my 401k last year. 
I said, okay, you're putting a thousand dollars a month into this 401k, correct? He said, yeah. I said, we're going to take that thousand dollars. We're going to put it into this, this uh, policy and you're going to do it for 10 years. That's it. It's paid for. And I said, how long is it going to take you to pay your bills off the way you're doing? He said, 20 some years because we're paying extra on the mortgage. Well, guess what? With our program, we're paying it off 14.17 years faster. We're saving you over $73,000 in the interest. There's over $130,000 in a tax-free bucket of money that you become your own bank. Now, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go to the bank for a loan for anything, for a car, college education for your kids. Neil, I've done this for 13 years. I've spoken at Harvard about this. I've been on every major television network talking about this. I've been published in over 369 publications now. And it's just thinking outside the box, conventional financial planning. But the other thing, too, he had a $400,000 death benefit. And I told him, this guy had just retired from the military. He was 42 years of age. I said, you're going to be 52 and everything's done. You're, you can never have to add any more money to this policy. But here's what you can do is you become your own bank, borrow from yourself, pay yourself back. But when you're 65, you're going to have over a quarter of a million dollars in tax-free money that does not affect the taxation of Social Security or the means testing Medicare Part B and your death benefits over $600,000 that protects your family or you can use for long-term care completely tax-free. Impressive stuff. Uh, does it protect you from any risks? Oh, my God. This is... This is so important. Between cash value life insurance, fixed and fixed index annuities when properly structured, first off, they protect you from the number one risk in retirement is running out of money before you run out of life. They protect you from sequence returns risk, which many financial planners don't tell their clients about. And many clients, well, 99% of people I talk to have no idea what it is. But if you're, say, 65 and you, you uh, take money from your stock portfolio for your retirement, and let's say a, a million dollars a, at a 4% distribution rate, that's only $40,000 a year from a stock portfolio, but that's not guaranteed. Uh, the good, the, the, the real uh, distribution rate now is down to 2.8% because of inflation and everything. But the big thing is, Neil, it's, uh, if you have a loss in the first two to three years, when you start to take your money out, as compared to the last two to three years of a 10 or 20 year period, you have to take a larger distribution rate out from a decreasing asset and you'll be out of money by your eighth or ninth year. I know people have run out of money when they're 75, 85 years old. Many people like that, when all they had to do was, was diversify their accounts, but they left it all in the stock market. But it's, uh, it, it's really cr crazy. It, they, it does, you know, stock market can't protect you from the market risk. Insurance products do. They can't protect you from tax risk. Insurance products do. And you know, people ask me, well, Alan, what if the, the laws are changed for insurance products? I said, well, they've changed them several times now. But all these people uh, that have these contracts right now, they don't, they're still enforced because you can't change contract law. They can change tax laws, but they can't, that doesn't affect contract law. Okay. But the thing is, it's just longevity risk, which is a risk multiplier. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Yeah. In summary, what, can people, uh, what, can, what do you tell people, Alan? Well, this is one thing I say to people. I said, listen, how would you like to have a financial vehicle that you can uh, leverage the effective tax or that leverage our tax system? Because we have a progressive tax system. You can turn forever taxable money into never taxable money. You are protected from long-term care. I mean, excuse me, you are protected from lawsuits, liens, and judgments. 
you can produce income before and during retirement that's completely tax-free and you have access to it anytime because you have liquidity use control. You avoid probate. And what people don't know what probate is, I have a loss. I mean, I have a definition for it. It's a lawsuit that's initiated by you that you're going to pay for and you're going to lose because the government's going to take control of your assets and pay the taxes on your estate. And your family's going to be left with maybe 10 to 15 to 20% of that estate. Um, you, like I said, you become your own bank, like I explained before. It, it, uh, I mean, also, you, it grows tax deferred. It does not affect the taxation of Social Security, the means test of Medicare Part B, protected from market risk. And the list just goes on and on. And people say, well, there's no such financial vehicle. I said, yes, there is. There's cash value life insurance. Well, why don't I know about this? Because you've been listening to the propaganda of Wall Street and fee-based advisors that don't like insurance products or anybody that doesn't like insurance products because they're not properly educated and they're unlicensed. They want to spend your money having fun spending your money by getting all those uh fees that they pay right and well, the, everyone yeah. else they, they they have the big extravagant parties while people are looking to buy groceries that's the bottom think line about this. think about this if you're contributing to a 401k first off 58 percent of the people out there don't even think there's a fee in the 401k a one percent fee over a 30-year period will reduce your income by one third and the average fee in a 401k is 2.99 percent people are going to have less than half of their money when they go to retire they're, they're not they're not even aware of this. The one thing people have always say to me, Alan, this sounds too good to be true. I just tell them it's too good to be free. All right. Well, best place to go is call you at 910-551-1046 or email you at strategicwealththenumberzero@gmail.com or at many other places as well. Alan Porter's everywhere. Check him out on YouTube. Check him out on Facebook. Message him. He'll talk to you anytime, anywhere because Alan is constantly doing this because he's passionate about what he does. Alan, thanks again for stopping by. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. All right. That was the Strategic Wealth Strategies podcast, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Strategic Wealth Strategies podcast with our host, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, it's a little cold out here in North Carolina. We're down to 22 degrees this morning. I'm not used to that, so I hate cold weather. I, I, got, uh, I never got used to it. I had a couple tours in Korea when I was in the military, and and we're out in the field, It's and it's cold out there, snow, foot and a half deep, and 20 below zero. It was no fun. Oh. But uh, yeah. we don't have very much. Uh, this is kind of a different thing here in North Carolina because we usually have pretty good weather. Yeah, it's cold everywhere. It was so freezing in Pittsburgh this week. I miss Texas, but I bet you it's cold in Texas too. All right. Our topic today is economic situation. Alan, doomsday. We don't want to put doomsday out there, but ultimately – soon i think there's gonna be a crash right well you know this is just this eats at me every day uh people look at the market market's doing doing fine so far but uh, they don't realize uh about what's underneath the m2 money supply the m2 money supply neil is what they loan to people the businesses that keep because we're a consumer-based uh, right. economy and we have to loan money to these businesses to, to, to produce good goods but the m2 money supply right now is at depression and recession levels and that's not good i mean if it gets to that point that's nothing going to happen they're talking about a black swan event where you where 2008 is going to look good and people oh my god 2008 
understand when you lose 50 percent, it takes 100 percent just to get back to even. But there's many things. I mean, inflation, uh, our national debt, it, it's just crazy. And people are not prepared for it. And the future of our economy does not look bright, does it? It doesn't to me. Now, I don't get I don't give investment advice, uh, but uh, from all and I read constantly, you know that. But the things I'm reading and the way the things are going, we got all these wars going on right now. And we're just giving billions and billions and billions of dollars away. And it's just, it's crazy the way things are going. What about taxes? Do you think they're going to go up? <laughs> well, absolutely going to go up. You know, I mean, I've said before, I read a congressional budget office report last fall on a $31 trillion deficit. If taxes aren't raised overall by 66%, and that's a big number, by the year 2030, we can't even pay the debt excuse me, the interest on the debt, the country, the country will default. Well, guess what, Neil? We're less than a, a year later, and our and our uh, national debt is at $33 trillion and growing every day. And people Neil, people don't understand the size of a trillion. If, if, and I, I learned this today because I thought it was, I, I was about many, many years off. But a trillion, if you had one second and every day for a trillion, just one trillion, Take a guess how many years that would be. How many? Well, 30,000 year BC. That's when it would start. That's just one trillion. And our debt now is $33 trillion. And we have trillionaires now, too, Alan. That's a long time they're earning $20 trillion. Oh, man, it's crazy. That's how Apple's now a trillion dollars. So Apple could bail, bail out our debt. Maybe. They're going to they're gonna have to either lower benefits or raise taxes. And the, the crazy thing is they keep adding more benefits, you know, just like what we, we got down the border. All these people are pouring across the border. They're getting free food. They're getting free housing. They're getting free health care. They're getting free education. We can't even get that for our veterans. I mean, it's crazy. Totally. Uh, I've heard Social Security will run out of money by 2033. Don't a lot of people depend on that? Well, over 50% of people depend on that as their number one source of retirement. And that's terrible because they're in poverty. It's terrible. And here's the thing. You know, I think Social Security was enacted in 1935, first paid out in 1942. Life expectancy at that time was 62. You couldn't collect it until, collect it until 65. And I believe there were 42 or 44 workers for one individual. Well, guess what? Now... We can take that money out for Social Security at 62. Life expectancy for a man is 85, 87 for a woman. And if you're married, it's even longer. And I said, now there's only three workers for one individual. And in seven more years or six more years, there's only going to be two workers for one individual. Wow. What are you gonna, they've, got to raise, they've got to raise the taxes. There's many things they can do. They can't get rid of Social Security because it, it, too many people rely on it. Yeah, but there's many things they can do. It's just like I think if you make more than I can't remember two hundred some thousand dollars a joint, you don't have to pay Social Security taxes anymore. Well, the thing is, if they start putting Social Security on the care how, taxes on, I don't care how much you make, uh, that's going to affect the rich and the lobbying efforts. And I don't know what's going to happen, but something's got to happen. Neil. People don't think that they will need as much income in retirement. Why is that? That's a complete fallacy. 
when you go to retire, and this is from Tom Hagner, you have your go-go years, you have your slow-go years, and you have your no-go years. Well, your go-go years when you retire, and I hate to tell people, uh, when do you spend the most money? I find people spend the most money on Saturdays. Well, when you retire, every day is Saturday. And if you got grandkids, you spend a lot of money on grandkids. I know. I've got five of them. I spend a lot of money on my grandkids. I love my grandkids to death. That's why you're working on 10 o'clock at night still, Alan. Because I love what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, long term, I mean, the health co health costs. I th read somewhere, it's, you've got to have over like $350,000 in retirement to just cover your health costs. And it goes up all the time. But just like long-term care, you know, people people don't understand about long-term care. And I know this personally because of my brother, I had to put him in a nursing home. He has Alzheimer's. Long-term care right now costs between fifty dollars to $200,000 a year. And it goes up by 6% every year. And the great thing about cash value life insurance, that death benefit, just like my, my, my daughter-in-law that died of pancreatic cancer at 39, she had to access that terminal illness rider which was uh, the death benefit, which was hundreds of thousands of dollars, completely tax-free for pennies on the dollar. But if it not been for that, my, of course, my son would have been bankrupt and I took a huge financial strain off of me. But uh, here's the thing, Neil. People don't think they're going to need long-term care. And 70% of the people in America are going to need long-term care at some point in their life. Over 40% of people in long-term care right now are between the ages of 18 and 64. And there's an age lab study by Dr. Korsk at MIT University. If you're age 65 and married, there's a 75% chance of you or your spouse contacting Alzheimer's, dementia, or Parkinson's. Oh and God. it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. You know, you, you go talk to your, your loved ones. They don't even know your name. And they, yeah. they, this can linger. This can link. I know one lady that's been there for 10 years. I mean, it's terrible. I talked to my brother. So far, he remembers my name. But uh, it gets worse every time. Yeah. I've heard people tell me that over a million dollars in their stock portfolio, they don't have to worry. That's not, that's definitely not true. That is definitely not true. Because just like I said, if you got a million dollars in stock portfolio, you have sequence returns risk, you're going to be out of money in the eighth and ninth year. And that, that's all the place you've got. But I'm going to give you an example. Uh, and people don't like annuities. They, they say, well, it's too, they're too complicated and the fees are too high. Well, first off, there's four, three different types of annuities. They're variable annuities, which I don't have anything to do with because they're tied to the stock market, and their fees are over 4%. I sell fixed and fixed indexed annuities. But let's say that you have a million dollars in a stock portfolio. And let's say that stock portfolio, uh, you're 60, you get that million dollars in there, and you get a 6% net rate of return over a five-year period. So you'd have to get 7, 7 half, half percent to net that 6% because of fees. I said that million dollars now is going to be worth $1,337,000. Now, at a 4% distribution rate, they said that used to be a safe distribution rate. Again, it's down to 2.8. But a 4% distribution rate, that's 53000 and some dollars per year, not guaranteed. But if you have that money in a fixed indexed annuity that I sponsor, with no gains in the indexing strategy, which is uncapped in this particular annuity, only the guarantees of the insurance company, guess what, Neil? You get income of over $81,989 a year guaranteed for the rest of your life, even if the assets run out in that, in that annuity. And people ask me, well, how is that possible? I said, because insurance companies manufacture mortality credits. I learned this from Tom Hagnett. They're the only financial industry uh, that can do that because you can't do it with cash. You can't do it with stock and bond portfolio. You can't do it with real estate or anything else. 
only insurance company. And they got, got you covered on both sides. If you die too soon with life insurance or if you live too long through fixed and fixed indexed annuities. Is there anything like we before. do to protect ourselves from those risks, Alan? I guess it's the fixed in, uh, index annuities. Oh, yeah. Just fixed, fixed indexed annuities, fixed or fixed index, cash value life insurance can protect you from all that sequence returns risk, the number one fear in life, running out of money before you run out. Of, uh, I'm running out of money before you run out of life. Longevity risk, tax risk, everything. But you've got to talk to somebody that's properly educated and knows how to properly build these policies. So I guess summing things up, people need to go and contact you today at 910-551-1046 or email you at strategicwealth.gmail.com. So these fixed, uh, I want to get into the annuities more of the ones that you that you uh, uh, offer. You know, it's interesting to look at this because everyone talks annuities all the time. What does it mean? Who can qualify? Why should they get them versus maybe even cash value life insurance at one point in time? So that'd be a good well, topic we'll to discuss. Talk about that, but just, it's just like, you know, people say there's too many fees on an annuity. I said, the only fees on a fixed or fixed index annuity is to get a benefit. All right. Some of many of my annuities don't have any fees. But just like this one I'm telling you about, they charge you a 1.1% a fee for a joint income, for joint, you know, people, both people get that income for the rest of their life. And what that does, it gives you a 20% bonus on, on the money that you put in. So you put $100,000 in. Now your income value is at $120,000. It wow. also gives 8% simple interest compounding or the indexing strategy, which is uncapped, guaranteed for 10 years. And then after that 10 years, you still have your indexing strategy. If that goes up, your income st still keeps increasing. I mean, that's pretty strong. All right. Well, we appreciate it, Alan. Thanks again. Great show. All right. Thank you very much. All right, that was the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, guys. Take care. With Walter Cronkite, 30 days before he's murdered. And he said, now at the time, Eisenhower had put 12, 1,200 so-called advisors in Vietnam, which was our third fake war. Our first fake war was the Spanish-American War, to th where we killed 200,000 Filipinos and uh hi everyone and welcome to the special simulcast of the neil haley show and celebrity interviews live from the grotto with greg hannah greg what's going on man how are you doing fantastic neil how about yourself fantastic and i'm sure you've talked about topics about jfk so many times in your life and wondering and this guy has so much knowledge and he has some secrets to tell us tonight that will be for our audience so our guest today is john barber and john we appreciate you coming on the show and you're you're a multi-emmy winning writer producer and director and uh you're going to be presenting john barber and william shakespeare's last word on the murder of jfk how are you john we're going to kind of get into your life and everything thanks for stopping by well i haven't heard anybody talk that fast in so long and i am really really delighted to be here honest to goodness so where do you want me to begin i'm best known i guess as a godfather of reality television, because I am the creator of the most original and first and most successful show in the history of television, which was Real People. And I had it from 1979 to 1982. And we did more good for America in those three years than 60 Minutes has done in 30 years. We got the Missing Children's Act passed, 
We got the uh, Navajo Code Talkers, a presidential citation from President Reagan. And just a couple of days ago, I was again honored because it was my story about a teacher whose son was murdered the first week in Vietnam, who built a private memorial in the mountains of New Mexico where he and his son used to go hunting. It was that piece that helped get the wall built in Washington, D.C. that nobody wanted because, first of all, it was an unpopular war, and secondly, it was designed by an Asian-American woman who had two strikes against her. So I am monumentally proud of that, and it was because of that that show I got to do the uh, interview that I did with Jim Garrison, uh, which was three and a half hours long, talking to him on camera, September 5th, 1981, and we talk, actually talked for eight hours. And Jim Garrison told me and chose me to be his Boswell, even though Oliver Stone in 1992 had bought his book on the Trail of the Assassins for $50,000 and was making that outstanding film with Kevin Costner called JFK. And uh, on Jim's deathbed, Oliver asked him if Oliver could also make a follow-up documentary. And Jim Garrison said, no, I want my Boswell to be John Barber because he lost two of the greatest shows in the history of television trying to tell my story. And the first, Neil, was in 1970 when ABC started the local morning show. 20,000 Chicanos at that time, there was a fairness doctrine, and 20,000 Chicanos were protesting the station, which they and they almost had the license because they didn't have representation on television. They didn't have it in education. They didn't have it in government. I was a very successful comic at the time. And a friend of mine who was a Chicano, the leading Chicano in television in LA, his name was Mario Machado, suggested I audition and I auditioned and got the job. And I did not book Mr. Garrison on the show. Mr. Garrison arrested Clay Shaw in 1969. He went on camera and he had the information and the courage and the knowledge to say this, we have solved this crime. We have money exchanged. We have the names of the planners and the shooters. There will be convictions when we get to trial. But for two years, the government stood in his way and wouldn't let him get to trial. And the media drummed all of us by saying that Mr. Garrison was a kook. And I and listen, I came to this country when I was 17. I came and was deported twice. I was uh, born in the Salvation Army Charity Ward in Toronto. Two parents who didn't want me at six years of age. My father deserted us and went to the Second World War, what was easier fighting Germans than my mother. And at six, I was out on the street. And, and, I, and I, I fell in love with movies. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart, okay? And so I decided that I was going to come to this country, was deported twice. And I don't want to get into that, but a lot of these stories 
are in the best book ever written about anybody in show business called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. Now, the first time I talked to Mr. Garrison is, uh, and I believed that the government was right with he.